welcome to the Jolly Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Barrett. This podcast is for those who are interested in the conversation around diversity, inclusion, and equity. Each week, I'll be interviewing a guest who has something special to share or is actively part of building solutions in this space. Let's get started. So I am so excited to have you here and so intrigued with how you got here and many of things of the things that you're working on outside of your day job. It spoke volumes to me through your bio when you said you came from a military family. So I was like, oh, that level of excellence <laughs> I can see was probably built in at birth. Um, <laughs> So, Dr. D, um, I will just kind of dive right in because there's so many people out here focused on diversity, inclusion, equity, belonging, and you have such an expertise in design thinking, service design, and inclusive Mm -hmm. design. So, when I'm thinking about inclusion, you know, I'm always focused on ensuring that the thoughts and ideas and perspectives of all individuals Mm -hmm. matter, but how does that translate when you think about design? Yeah. So when you think about design and you're trying to think of the perspectives, I always try to speak to whoever I'm working with and say, who's missing? That's whether we're building a program for the community, whether we're designing products, you take a step back and say, Who's missing? Because often what we'll do is like, oh, this is the person that's you that's supposed to use or is intended to use, but we end up forgetting a whole set. And so, like, even in you know some of the different areas of healthcare, particularly, is what a lot of my work has been in as well. You forget there are people who can't get to the hospital, can't get to the clinic. How do you design? your applications to address those needs and things of that nature. So my main question, and when I think of inclusive, it's like, who did we forget? And inclusions on so many different levels. So you have disability, you have race, you know, so you have to think about that. Like, who is your intended audience and who are you forgetting? And also, often I want to tell people not to get stuck in the intended audience. If someone who wasn't a part of the intended audience tried to use whatever you're developing, what would their experience be like? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's so interesting because when you think about how these applications affect people and communities, when nobody's thinking about inclusion in design, Mm -hmm. like what are some of the challenges when, you know, or what's the biggest challenge when it comes to inclusive design? Yeah. I think one of the biggest challenges in what I've seen, and, and I've been doing this, since undergrad. So I've always said, how does technology impact society, right? We're always trying to build something for for it to be better, but there's unintended consequences sometimes. And so I remember even recently, about a couple of years ago, when you, you know, you go into the restrooms at different restaurants or in the airport, definitely, and you put your hand in front of to, to, to get the water to start. Well, I, and and then this article came out and I know I'm now I'm not crazy. I couldn't get the water to start. I had to turn my hand this way to get it to start. But if I showed my pigmentation, it wasn't able. And so these are things that wasn't tested. You know, you start thinking about that. So now let's think about now we're in AI. Mm -hmm. AI is built off of data. (laughs) Data is biased. 
So now we're just continuing the issue of like being biased and developing technology that's biased. And so that is where the problem comes into play because we just perpetuate what we've been doing for so long. And so you're leaving people out. And so when you think about it from that perspective, I, I started taking that and looking at how we do policing, right? And what mm-hmm. do we do there? And how now we're trying to do big data and technology and policing, an area that normally doesn't, what does that really mean? You already have these infrastructures and issues where there are racial issues in policing. Now you're going to add technology that can actually contribute and make it a worse situation. And so that's what you have to think about when you're bringing technology into the realm and what it really means for inclusive design. So, I mean, in the end, it's like having that conversation and being open to understand that we already have these structures and systematic injustices and disparities, social disparities in place, that adding technology could be a Band-Aid versus helping and and not address the root cause. And I always tell people, you know, if we look at it from a tree perspective, there's the root and then the leaves are the symptoms. Let's not just address the symptoms. Let's start addressing the root. Definitely. So Mm -hmm. then, I mean, is part of the challenge for inclusive design an acknowledgement, you know, that there is this issue and these disparities? Yeah, I think think a lot of it is acknowledgement. I think some of it is, is that it's, there's this, it's not there anymore. Like, oh, we've come so far. It's not there. And that's not true. It's the reality is it is still there. And so a lot of times, you know, people want to act like everything's okay and it's not. And when they think about particularly in design, how they're designing, designing for diversity and what that really means it also has a negative connotation. So design in itself, let's let's take a step back. If when you're thinking about it from a product, design doesn't always get the best love. If I was to think about it from all the organizations I've worked at as a researcher, as a UX designer, we're coming in kind of like the bad guys in a sense, right? We're looked at as like, oh no, you're going to have usability issues. It's going to take us longer to develop. So you already have that as an issue. Now you're saying, oh, on top of that, I'm now going to tell you you need to be inclusive. And what does that really mean? And how do you break that into the process? I think one of the challenges is, is that it's a, the process is not linear, right? It, and that is really, and everyone's like, oh, it needs to be a part of the agile process or the waterfall. It's not going to be that simple. There are layers to making sure and checkpoints throughout the process that you have to take into account. So if you put on top that we have already have some type of negative, I mean, I will say that in the last coming years, UX has got better at um, being appreciated at different companies and accessibility has become important and things of that nature, but it's not to the extent that it needs to be. And I don't think people know what product inclusion really is to some extent. I know Google has opened up a group um, or has a team and they have really focused on product inclusion. But I think sometimes at companies where we're stopping, there's an acknowledgement issue, but there's also like, oh, it's only accessibility. And then when you think of what accessibility is, it's like, what? how do you define accessibility? And that's normally people are talking about people who have disabilities, right? Mm-hmm. But it's more than that. It goes beyond. And that's why I think inclusive design in itself has layers and it's critical 
to address those layers. And that's one thing I'm actually working on something at my current company as it relates to how do we bring in inclusive design um, across the board. Yeah. Well, and it's, I mean, at the, at the crux of it, it's like diversity and inclusion is one thing when you're talking about retention or recruitment of employees. But then when you get into the product design, there's a whole nother layer of, you know, trying to figure out how that integration actually looks and feels to everyone that you're serving. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So then you talked about, I think, inclusive design. And then, you know, a lot of what you work on also has this community-based design. Mm -hmm. And what is that exactly? (laughs) So community-based design is really involving or mobilizing the community to be involved in whatever solutions we're coming up with. So I recently worked on a project where we looked at gentrification. Well, the process of gentrification going on within Austin. It was critical that this community was a part of that conversation. So we already saw the developer and what they're planning to do. We already see what the city of Austin's planning to do. But it's like, it's going to impact this community and it's going to push them out. And they don't want to be pushed out. They want to be there. And so it's like, how do we help them not get pushed out, not raise the cost and allow them to stay in their community? Well, it's bringing them to the conversation, really doing that community-based, like engaging with the community aligning with them on what the real problem is. I think one of the things that I've seen from my experience is that we don't know how to define the problem and we don't define the problem from the people we're trying to help solve, right? So it's like, this is your problem, but that's not their problem, right? So it's having those conversations. And that is what, you know, working with Measure, I, I worked with this organization Measure and we developed a care model which is about community advocacy, resilience, and evidence. And what it taught, the first step is engaging the community, having them come to the table and really aligning on the problem, saying, okay, here's the data that we understand. This is the problem we understand. Is this your problem? And often you'll hear like, no, that's not our problem. Here's the real problem. And bringing them along in the journey and helping them uh, to solve the problem themselves. Yeah. That's awesome. So, and when you use it, I mean, you talked about a complex problem right there, Mm -hmm. but I know there's so many things going on within communities. And one of the things that is so challenging when you think about diversity and inclusion is, you know, you have this opportunity to do better and be better, but there's all this complexity Mm -hmm. as to how you actually make the social impact you really want to make, whether you're a corporation or you running the city or whatever, there is such a challenge to kind of figure out how do you bring everyone with you? And certainly in the United States, you know, we'd love for everybody to be happy. (laughs) But, you know, as we've gone through the election cycle, we also saw lots of, you know, differences in terms of extremes on one side or the other and trying to figure out how to bring people together. So I know, you know, and certainly with the George Floyd incident and all of the things that happened in the last year, I think Mm -hmm. you, I think had, you've done some real interesting work with the police and the communities as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, You know, from your, from your design and user (laughs) 
background? <laughs> yeah. So I was at a talk about four years ago where, yeah, it's about four years ago, where the leader of this organization called Measure asked the question. And at this time, she was running big data and community policing uh, conferences. That's what she was doing. And so she's, we're at IBM for talk about technology and she raised her hand and she's like, have y'all ever thought like, what could y'all do? How do you use design? How do you use technology to address these social disparities and issues in community policing? And I sat there and I was like, what is this lady talking about? Like, why, like, we're here at this talk. And then I had to think and I was like, oh, but, you know, design thinking is about taking a different approach to problem solving. And I said, I think that's the issue from what I understand and how the police works currently. They're, they're doing the same thing. They've been doing it for so long. And so I raised my hand and I said, well, I think you could apply design thinking. And never did I think that she would follow up with me and ask me to come up with a curriculum and apply design thinking to community policing. And so in Austin, I ran that course. And it was very interesting dynamics for the first time when I ran it. I remember some people did not want to come into the class because the police officers were in there with their guns. And what was critical about this class, for it to be successful, you needed the community and you needed the police officers. A couple of times after I asked police officers, could they just come in regular clothes? And there was a reason I did that too, because I think also- They were in uniforms. They were in uniforms, right. And so I wanted to show also the community, these people are your community. You know, it goes back to that question, like who is missing? And often it's like community versus police. And I'm like, no, the police is a part of the community. So um, you have to understand (laughs) that and look at it from that perspective. And so- we use design thinking. Um, I use design thinking and I really focused in on the empathy part. So there's five core steps in design thinking and there's other people that have done other versions, but the five core steps is like empathy, defining the problem, you know, identifying the solution, prototyping. And then, and so in looking at design, I said the issue I saw was the empathy part. Empathy on both sides. And this Mm -hmm. this conversation gets really heated and never do I ever finish like through the class um, through this because of this particular like empathy of like them understanding the police officers understanding the community's perspective as well as um, vice versa, the community understanding. And really, and I gave an example where I was like, well, I'm going to use myself. Police officer, help me with this. And I said, I'm speeding. You pull me over. I tell you that my mom has passed away. How do you respond? Are you going to give me a ticket? Are you going to let me go? I need to go. Or my mom is in the hospital and she's on her dying, on her deathbed, and I need to go. And it was interesting. So everybody, all the community was like, oh, you're getting the ticket. No matter what, you're black and you're a woman and you're speeding, <laughs> you're getting the ticket. And I was like, wait, tell me what would you do? And they explained, they were like, this is the situation where I can empathize with her and say, okay, this is why. I would probably give her a warning, tell her to slow down because we want her to get there to see her mother. And everybody was surprised that that was the response. But I said, that's the empathy part that you guys forget that they're human too. They have a mother. But I said, also, then I took it on the flip side and I said, here's what you see a person, how you approach us on the street is really critical. You can't come to me saying, what you're doing versus, hi, how are you? There's a 
difference in how you communicate. And so the community-based part is really listening to the community, using design thinking to really start that conversation and understand what does empathy look like. And then also pushing the officers to really think about when you bring in technology to solve a solution, if you have a hotspot issue and you're now going to put cameras everywhere, what does that mean? What have you now brought up in like the community? How are they going to react and feel? What does trust happen? You, you're trying to build trust. And now you've got all these cameras around. Right. What is their trust? What, would you like that? How does that look? And start having those conversations and things of that nature. And so that's what design thinking, I never like honestly ever thought to even apply that to this. But once she asked and I had time to really sit down, I was like, oh yeah, this would work. And so I've gone around to different places in Texas and I've started also going to uh, California and really teaching and also working with DC, um, starting to work with DC, have been in communication with them to see how we can come in and do classes really about evidence-based policing and showing them different ways to approach solutions and community, community policing. Yeah. That's fantastic. And it's amazing to me because I think even in my own community in California, we have begun, you know, kind of doing that work of getting the police and the community together. Mm -hmm. In fact, my late husband actually, I think, triggered the first community discussion between the police and the Black community here. And it, it turned into, you know, let's create a committee and, you know, let's actually interact and What's amazing when you actually get to know people and connect that, you know, you start to be able to discuss common issues and, you know, kind of figure out what the synergies are to create yet an alternative solution (laughs) that maybe can meet most of the needs, if not all. Right. So I love the fact that when you think about, you know, inclusive design, that you're attaching it to all of these different complex, you know, social disparity issues, because at the, at the crux of it, I mean, the business case for, or the use case Mm -hmm. is it becomes diversity and inclusion, right? (laughs) So really kind of everywhere you go, you're thinking about how to do that. So then when you're talking about some of the things you're doing in terms of training and coaching, mm-hmm. I mean, where do you have to start when you, you know, you begin to bring folks together? Because if empathy is the challenge, like how do you kick off to kind of encourage people to empathize? Because I think sometimes people come to the conversation, right? They have their view and their view is right. Yep. So one of the activities I have everyone do in these courses is called an empathy map. And what they do is they actually write from the perspective of the other person. Um, and they look at, you know, there's a, I'll give a situation and, and I'll say, what do you think? How do you think they feel? What do you think they're hearing? What do you see? Things of that nature. And then what are the cultural aspects? Added that piece to it to understand, like, what are the cultural aspects that you need to consider And you start, that's when they're like looking at this map and they're like, oh my goodness, like this is different. You know, they start having that conversation. I said, so you see this person on the street, how would you treat them? Versus if I would have just said, hey, this is, you know, Sam and Sam is doing this, this and this, and you know nothing versus now you're now thinking, okay, Sam came from this community 
he's probably thinking this way when he's in this type of situation. He's probably hearing this when I speak to him this way. And so really taking that empathy mapping um, activity and helping them. And, and in the class, they're interviewing each other to understand and listen. And so that that's critical to the whole process of getting them started too. And I mean, ultimately you have to be open, right? You And, and yeah. that's what I tell them in the beginning when I start, I said, you're here because you want to learn <laughs> how to better engage with the community and how to better engage with your community police officers as well. So this is your purpose. If you're not here for that, you may want to get up and leave right now because that's what we're going to be doing. Um, but that sets the stage. And then, you know, we go into those lessons and things of that nature. And it's always just mind-bottling of like what people come up with and what they say and what they learn just by sitting there and listening to people and hearing you know, you, you give that space, right? Yeah. Which I think yeah. is so missing a lot of times yeah. is just, you know, to create the ability, that silence for people to think yes. and create and connect. So that's that's incredible. I mean, I, I think it's interesting too, because not to pick on the police, but I mean, there is a safety issue. They can't you know, in some cases, it's like, yeah, I want to empathize, but yep. I want to live and I want to make sure right. that, you know, we're protecting people. Yes. So yes. there is that kind of dichotomy of quick thinking one way or the other. They have to do a lot of that yep. kind of in, a, in an instant. Yeah. But I think sometimes, too, it's it's also the point of, hey, we made a mistake or, you know, like, how do we how do you own that? <laughs> And, you know, as we think about integration of design, yeah, because I think everybody's so worried about the mistakes. Yeah. And I think that's what makes UX and design really interested in this aspect, because the one thing about and the design thinking process, you don't just stop at the end of testing. You reiterate. Right. And so that means you're allowed to make a mistake. That That's the thing. It's like you're it's continuous learning. And I think that is what needs to be taught too, that it's okay. I mean, the mistake can't be too big, you know, you don't want to, <laughs> but I mean, it's okay. You're going to make mistakes. And I think it's the whole concept about failures teach you. They're not necessarily, neg- they're not negative. They're there for you to learn. And that's something I think that I do like about the design thinking process because of that iterative process that allows us to keep on improving. And so it's that continuous improvement mindset that police officers need to understand. And I think that's gonna change, gonna need to change from the higher up of how police officers are trained. In a sense, and, and even in the military, to some extent, the guy may kill me, but in the military, <laughs> they're, they're, you know, they're trained to, you know, be perfect in a sense. Like they, you know, they can make a mistake, you know, to your point, safety is what's important. So they can't let things. And I think we have to change that whole mindset of what that really looks like as a real, you can still be safe and there are going to be some mistakes, but allow yourself to learn from it and be open to learn. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, to your point, kind of coming full circle about that empathy, right? Because it's like, None of us perfect, are perfect. Right. And when somebody owns that mistake, like, okay, I I appreciate that and let's move right, on, you right. know. 
but you know, a lot of times people get hurt, people get killed, people, you know, I mean, like, and that's the thing. And yeah. And, and that's where, and that's where it's like, it's not a, mis- is it, was it a mistake? I think also understanding what is considered a mistake, right? Well, how do you yeah. define a mistake? Some of these, not many of these are not mistakes, right? There you, and you have to own, <laughs> you have to own Fair that. point. Yes. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> so that, that's critical too. Yeah. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. Yeah. So then in terms of like, how does we spend a lot of time talking about like unconscious bias Mm -hmm. and, and things like that? How does that roll into some of the inclusive design and how do you, you know, kind of eliminate that as you go? Because I think, you know, design is kind of like one of those things where you are impacting the marketplace and there are, I'm sure, lots of blind spots that, you know, the team may not even see when they're creating the design. Yep. I agree. So it's really critical and important to really understand the space, but even in understanding, you know, you're going to be missing some pieces to it. I think in like my roles have always been to really far reach beyond the user itself, really looking at the ecosystem and understanding what's going on in a project outside of work. One of the things we took was to address the bias was that we came up with a document that talked about your core values, but then also asked questions as it relates to your bias. And I think something like that can be instituted. Like when you start a project at work, what are your core values? Everybody goes around the table. This helps you like understand, empathize and and empathize. When I say empathy, often people are like thinking of users. No, I mean, empathize with your team. Understand from their perspective, what are the pressures on them? And this is where you get the core values. You think about that. Okay, this person thinks this is important. Okay, as we're designing you're thinking about that, but then also talking about and answering those questions as it relates to what are your biases and, and what does that look like and what does that mean and have those conversations very early on. I say that to say that you don't stop after you say you have to come back to it. And I think that's where the issue is. People often bring up biases and up in front and then forget about it. And so every iteration and what's nice about design, because you're iterating, you should be bringing back saying, okay, do we add another user? Do we have any biases? Did something, you know, as we're getting, looking at the result, are there any inherent biases here from the results? How do we think about that and moving it forward? So again, it's going back to that process of being able to come back and really ask those questions over and over again. I know it sounds redundant and some, to some extent sounds tiring or and easy, to, but it's not really easy, actually, because people forget because you have so many competing priorities um, going on. So it's it really you have to be intentional and, and yes. to really do that. That's my word for the year. <laughs> intentional. <laughs> So, so then just to kind of flip us to, you know, we've talked a lot about some of the challenges and all of those things. Like, what does success really look like in the space when you are successful 
at creating an inclusive design? And what does that mean? Like, you know, as you iterate, you know, how do you remain successful? Yeah, I think in inclusive design, when you're thinking about this and what success looks like, you have to think about it from an equitable perspective, right? And really understand, okay, I designed this for this group. There are other groups that possibly could use it doesn't meet their needs. And really that, I mean, that's really what it doesn't leave anyone out. If I use finance, if I'm developing an app, will the unbanked be able to use this, right? Like when I think about that, like it, it, or, you know, from financial inclusion, who are we including? Who are we at? So when you're thinking about it, you're thinking about it from the perspective, I, I designed it for this group, but is there another group that can actually use it and will be able to use it. And so the success of it is like, if you think about, I'll go back to the AI example, or you look voiceover, and you think about those voice voice communication, how we're using that tech, or mixed reality. Can D and all her friends use the technology? Is it inherently leaving out people that it shouldn't be who's a part of that group that you intended to use? So if you're building a technology like a toy for kids, the age group, three to five, every three to five-year-old should be able to use it. Okay, there's layers to that. What does that really mean? It's not just a particular, it's every three to five. When I go into the store, I'm looking at the age, okay, three plus I should be able to get that for anybody and not and not discriminate in any type of way. So, I mean, inclusive design is really about being able to sit back and say, did I develop an equitable design in the end? Was it equity-centered? How did I take this approach? And it's more and less about the design, but the process in getting to that final design. And, yes, yeah. the process. I love that. So then, and I think a lot of times when people think about diversity, they're thinking, you know, maybe gender and ethnicity mm-hmm. or race, but they they don't think about all the other things that are unique about Dr. <laughs> or Melissa Barrett, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so it's interesting because, you know, you talked at the beginning about how inclusive design can elongate the process to get the product to market. But at the end of the day, you obviously end up with a better product. And so, you know, it's interesting as we think about agile and, you know, expanding into different markets and just being able to generate the right features for value to each of the communities. It's almost like you, you have blown out the product development, (laughs) you know, process to the point where, you really have to be aware of what markets you really are interested right, in right. and then really figure out how to prioritize because it, it becomes this, you know, prioritization, which of course costs money. money. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of interesting when you think about the successes of, you know, maybe who are there folks that are doing this really well in the space that you have seen or, you know, that we could learn from? I I think, you know, the fact that Google took it to the level that there is actually a product inclusion group within Google 
I think that speaks volume in itself. And I think they are approaching it in a good space. What's interesting, and I say that because it's always, I, I was hesitant about saying Google because I know there's other issues that are at Google that are not saying that they are being, you know, inclusive, right? And so I have to, it's like, you took the initiative to create this group. And I think that's a great step for many companies is really creating a product inclusion group. And well, you know, and the devil's always in the details, (laughs) right? So (laughs) it's like, it's great that you threw yourself out there, but But, right. So that's the thing. So I think, is are people doing it? I, I I will say this: accessibility has come a long way, and I think people are doing that really well. When we start touching yeah. on other layers, we have a long way to go. Um, when we start thinking about race and things of that nature, and how you design technology, and, I, and we've been talking about this for a long time. You know, you think about Barbie and what Barbie used to look like versus now, and race and technology isn't a new topic. It's just we still haven't moved the needle as much as we we need to as it relates to race. And then there's other layers. I mean, like I said, financial inclusion. You think about that. What does that look like? So it depending on what area you're in, health equity, you know, it depends on all the different markets that you can be in that the inclusive definition changes to some extent and it's hard to get. So are there companies doing it well? I think... There are companies that have are doing accessibility better than before, and accessibility is now a legal aspect too. And so, to get government contracts, mm-hmm. you need to be accessible. So, I feel like, and as government comes on and starts pushing things, and people need contracts, and that's when things will get better in other areas of inclusive design. I think there are companies such as mine, that are looking at how do we do that. I, I remember being on a research team and somebody, we're a global company. And I'm like, global in itself, that word means you have to be inclusive in everything you do. And <laughs> it was brought to yeah. my attention, even with the mock-up, OD, you guys, you know, you show us Americans, but we're selling to Japan. and But your product's not showing us somebody that's... And I was like, oh my goodness, this is the design piece. And I was like, oh, wow, we have to be inclusive of everyone and every... And I think companies are doing well by having those ERGs. But when it comes down to process, and mm-hmm. it goes back to your point of competing priorities and things of that nature, and it costing money... That's where we're losing. I don't. I haven't seen a company that I could say yes, they're doing it so well that we need to take their model. I think there's pieces out there that we have to take. And and one thing I'm just like, okay, if accessibility is doing really well, let's take a step back. What? what how do we get there? And how do we replicate? Because right. that that to me, it's like the ability to replicate it in in different forms and fashions for different levels of assess- uh, in, inclusiveness is what makes it successful in itself. Well, and it's funny you mentioned that because when I think about it, I go, I think back to the American Disabilities Act and, you know, Mm -hmm. there was like all of a sudden there and it it, it took a while, I would say, (laughs) for us to to get to the place where people are being intentional and thinking about how their buildings Mm -hmm. are designed and how the doors work and, you know, all of those things. 
it, it's funny that you say that because it's, you know, it, it is almost very intentional, but, you know, ideally you would hope everything doesn't have to be, you know, yeah. government driven. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I mean, the, the private sector certainly has an opportunity yeah. to really make a difference Absolutely. without having all of that regulation come with yeah. it. Yeah. And I think I can see probably that moving more as we're advancing in technology. And I, and it'll be interesting because as we are looking at data and we're looking at AI, it, it, it's, it's a area that has to be addressed because we already know data is faulty. Data is biased. It's an area that can't no longer go ignored. So it has to be addressed to some extent. Yeah. So what do you think about, if we flip the script from looking at it from a design perspective, from, you know, a a creation of it at a company Mm -hmm. or whatever, I mean, the users themselves, are there things that users should be thinking about? Talk about the, you know, kind of bias in data. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all know that there is obvious biases in data. Are there things that, the user should be doing or thinking about as they are, you know, being included in this inclusive design? I, I think users should be asking for their research related to what they're using. I think users should be giving feedback on a continuous basis and asking for the ability to have that uh, a mechanism to provide feedback. I think that that's where it, it becomes the new, I mean, for consumers... Consumers like to talk, right? They like to give feedback. They like to give reviews. Well, usually it's like you either like it or you hate it, right? <laughs> if you're like in the middle, you're probably not going to give a review. <laughs> That's fair. You won't intentionally give a review. However, if you, if you, if companies and people and consumers together, like if, if a consumer says, I want a forum to talk in, I think that is what needs to happen, right? You need to be looking at, I think one of the examples I like so far is I'm on the app Clubhouse, right? And it's the app that's what I call a audio podcast, pretty much. That's what I mean. Everybody can participate. That's, That's the thing. So, and what I like about it, I think it's, I don't know if it's every Friday, but the founders have a town hall where all the users have the opportunity to give feedback on what features they like, what they didn't like, ask questions, why this worked this way, why did you do? And I'm just marveled at it. I'm like, oh my goodness. And they address it at that time. And I'm like, if everyone could do that. But what was interesting, what, I, what I'm bringing that up is that the users were in there to do that. So they, they, it was like, provide me a forum and I'll come. And I don't know if it's because people can't really see them other than their face and then you just hear their voice. And so they're great with that. That could be it. But they were able to get that. And I think so from a user, you should be thinking about, does this work for me? Does this work for my kid? Does this work for my friend? And if it doesn't, you should be able to find a way to provide that feedback. And I, and I honestly think also users, if they don't pay for it, impact change no matter what. I'm not going to buy this because it does not, it discriminates against me or I'm not going to use this. That in itself, you have to hit the bottom line. You know, you got to hit that bottom number in some kind of way for sometimes change. So yes, 
private sector has the ability to impact, but in in doing that, you sometimes have to impact private sector and letting them know money is where it's going to get hit if you don't improve your practice. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to see, you know, companies kind of go even much more broad, not just focusing on profit anymore, but really getting into the environment and social impact and all of those things, which I think is, is fabulous. I agree. So, you know, to me, I'm like, oh, well, if we had started there, (laughs) (laughs) maybe we would be a lot further along, but, but it's great. It's great to see. So I'm just going to go back to the beginning because I do, I already, I recorded your bio, your intro And, you know, you, it's so interesting to me. I know. So I just wanted to maybe cap it off okay. with you telling us how did, I mean, you doctor uh, with an MS <laughs> and a BS and all. I mean, like, how did you come to be okay. Dr. D? <laughs> um, okay. So I went to school. I'm a lefty. So I, I have this like. I mean, I feel like I'm a lefty. I was into engineering, but then my grandmother, so as a lefty, I went to this class called Science, Technology, and Society, and they talked about how technology actually excludes lefties, right? And so I'm a lefty with everyone in my family that's right. So my immediate family is right. My parents are, I I blame them on anything I do right because- (laughs) Like with my hand, my right hand, because they are right-handers, right? So I, sport-wise, I probably lean towards the right because they don't know how to teach a lefty. But I was so interested in that piece and like, how do we design for all? And so from there, my grandmother had diabetes. So finished school, went to engineer, uh, went to work for the National Academies of Engineering, uh, did some work there. And then I decided I wanted to go back to, and then went to National Science Foundation, met a professor there. And she was, and that was for me to pretty much look at how we can improve our engineering curriculum is why I was there. So I was a science education analyst and I met someone there, Dr. Wofford, and she was at Virginia Tech and she overheard me saying, I want to go back to school. And one of the reasons I want to go to school is my grandmother had diabetes and she couldn't use her blood glucose monitor. And I was like, okay, first I had the lefty issue. Now it's like technology that's supposed to help you and you can't use it. And so um, Dr. Walker uh, said, you get into Virginia Tech, I'll pay for your master's. Like, you know, I was like, well, I can do that. I think I can. (laughs) And so I applied and I got in and I worked under the advisement of Dr. Tanya Smith-Jackson, and I looked and I said, Tanya, we need to look at the design of technology and look at it from an aging and ethnicity perspective. And I ran a study where I had people who had diabetes come in and have them show me how they were using it, did a product interactive focus group, tried to understand how they were using, what were their issues, what they thought certain letters were. I mean, in the Black community, they don't say diabetes as much. They say, I have sugar. As you get older, they be like, I have sugar. And I'm like, these are the words and terminologies that differ by, you know, race. And we found that there was differences. And so from there, I said, okay, I want to take this to another level. And I want to really focus on, so I decided to stay in health systems engineering. I got my master's in health systems engineering. 
and I was there and I decided, okay, I want to stay for a PhD, but now what I want to do is talk about aging in place. So I've always been about inclusiveness, right? And I'm like, now we're moving to aging in place. What does that look like? How does the technology need to work? How do we help our, our older population stay in place and not have to go to a home and things and and really own. And so for my dissertation, I focused on security and privacy as we're moving technology into the home and really understanding private and public areas in the home and what older people, how they collect information outside and within the home and what type of controls we have to design to maintain their privacy. And so I found these different things. But the entire time when I look back, I was like, I've always been on this track about inclusiveness. Um, it started with well, how me. did you become a how did you become a lefty? And everybody's a righty. But I have to say, my son is a lefty and the rest of us are righties. And he has the same issue. So I don't know where he got that from. But yeah, so I mean, that that's literally where it that's it. I've always had this passion to help people, even when I find jobs, it's about what am I doing to help someone, any, anything. Um, and so that's where, that's my love. It's for inclusion. And that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, and you know, health equity is a whole nother conversation. Yeah. Um, yes. But, you know, there's so much work going on in that area mm-hmm. of health equity and it is so, so yeah. needed. So I'm encouraged to hear about all of the work you're doing with technology, because I know you know, there's so much technology now being yeah. used in the health sector. And as you think about privacy and security, I'm always thinking about who's watching how many Fitbit steps and whatever <laughs> I have going on. Um, <laughs> and what decisions are being made using that information. Mm-hmm. So, so it's really interesting. I would love to have you come back and talk, yeah. you know, even more about that. So we'll, we'll definitely connect. So yeah. Thank you so much for being here. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. This is great. I really appreciate the opportunity. I love it. I love this topic. I could speak about this forever. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. D. Miller, we are so happy you are out there working on behalf of everyone. And so keep up the great work. Thank you. Thanks for joining me on the Jolly Podcast. Please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. See you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.